Okay. So um, I've been transformed into uh, Paul Boberding, <laughs> and uh, I have more hair, but uh, he has more knowledge. Um, so um, we're moving along uh, well, a little bit ahead of schedule. So um, unless you feel a really great need to leave, to leave, it would be great if you hold on as long as possible. I think we're going to finish a little bit sooner than is, uh, is, is in the program. So our next speaker is Melanie Thompson. You've heard Melanie comment uh, substantially, expertly, um, with a lot of, um, uh, can I say, sense and sensitivity towards patients. Um, and she's going to talk about why we care about the care continuum. And she's the principal investigator of the AIDS Research Treatment Consortium of Atlanta, Georgia. Melanie. Thank you very much. Um, so we are going to uh, switch from clini clinical trial world um, into something a little more real world, perhaps. Uh, these are my uh, uh, disclosures and also learning objectives. And here is the care continuum. So I've been asked to talk about the care continuum. And I know this is what you're thinking. Um, but so we're going to do a little test. Um, oops. Let's, uh, let's do this ARS test um, first. Um, so what are the rates of viral suppression in New York City, the US, and Botswana? And I'm going to let you go ahead and uh, start voting right now. Um, you'll see that the rates of viral suppression for New York range from 70 to 76 percent, the US 49 to 58 percent, Botswana 35 to 92 percent. So um, what do you think? How well do you guys know the care continuum? I was hoping we were going to have some music from Botswana, but that hasn't happened. I really should be more careful to tailor the music to the, my talk. The last answer is, you've got to be kidding, because um, I know that's what some of you are thinking at this time in the day. All right, so uh, only 3% thought that I was kidding, uh, which is probably good. Um, the, those who said 70%, 49%, 35%, uh, you're, you're really um, underestimating Botswana, I'll say that. And the 70% probably is closer to New York State numbers than New York City numbers. So the rest of you were right. And we will... Uh, We'll go back. I'm sorry I had a slide out of order here. But I, I want to just remind you about the benefits of the care continuum. And, you know, this is kind of the iconic image of care in the U.S. and now around the world. And it's based on quantifiable outcomes. It focuses on viral suppression, which is an individual health issue and a public health issue. And every step tells us where we can do better and where we should focus our resources. And this can be implemented at the international level, at the local clinic level, um, and is important in that it highlights health disparities. And it's also important for advocacy and activism. But it is more complicated than it looks. So, you know, I think we need to be a little more critical when we look at these graphs and try to understand what they mean. First of all, maybe we should ask, what is the denominator that we're looking at? 
because if the denominator is all people living with HIV, it's a prevalence-based continuum. But if it is all those diagnosed, it's actually a diagnosis-based continuum, or it could be based on people in care only, and then it's a care-based continuum. So we'll look at a few examples. So here's Botswana. Okay, the, it's a prevalence-based continuum based on all people living with HIV in Botswana, and look how well they're doing, 78% virally suppressed. So if you said 78%, you were right. But if you said 92%, you were also right. But it's 92% of those who are diagnosed, not of all people. So here's the CDC continuum that all of us have seen. Uh, the prevalence-based continuum shows us that 49% of all people with HIV have viral suppression. But if we only talk about those who are diagnosed, then things look better, and the, the number is 58% virally suppressed. And then, if you look at a facility-based continuum, which I think is really fascinating, you, you see a different picture as well. And here um, is a slide from New York Presbyterian, and I hope if you haven't, you will go to ete-dashboardny.org, um, and that is where the Ending the Epidemic dashboards for facilities throughout New York City are found. And it's really a terrific resource. But as you can see, if you're looking only at the active patients, then viral suppression rates can be very high if you're at an excellent clinic that does good work. So what about UNAIDS' famous 90-90-90? 90% diagnosed, 90 on treatment, 90 virally suppressed. So when we achieve this, our graph will look like this, right? Well, okay, why? It's a continuum, it's a contingency-based continuum. And what does that mean? So yes, 90% of all people living with HIV would be diagnosed, but 90% of those actually are on treatment, so 81%. And 90% of those are virally suppressed, so actually 73% viral suppression. And this is how we're doing around the world uh, with our, our cascade. In a prevalence-based cascade of, of the world, about 44% have viral suppression. And, you know, honestly, we've made a huge amount of progress, uh, and we have a long way to go. But now, some people are actually saying, maybe 90-90-90 isn't enough. Not enough to end the epidemic, to turn this thing around. And so we'll begin to hear more about 95-95-95, but remember, that actually means about 86% viral suppression. So let's go back to the care continuum. Uh, this bar uh, that uh, represents all people living with HIV, that's not a measured number, it's calculated. Uh, most jurisdictions use the CDC back calculation methods based on the number of diagnosed patients. But what does that mean? So diagnosed usually means ever diagnosed and not known to be dead. But it turns out that not all of those people who are diagnosed are actually still living in the jurisdiction. It also turns out that different places use different methodology. So Georgia does not look at all like New York for so many reasons. So here's the New York City care continuum from 2012, representing about 115,000 people who were diagnosed. And 49% of those diagnosed were virally suppressed. 
So you will have some really awesome epidemiologists here in New York, and I know because I've spent a good bit of time on the phone with them trying to understand some of their methodology. Uh, and so what they did was to say, gee, there is a lot of in and out migration here in New York City, so we know that all these people are not really still in New York. And so they applied several different methodologies. I'm going to sum it up by calling it Magic Happens Here. Um, and then what you get is 80,000 people diagnosed in New York using their likelihood method, which removes about 30% of people from the denominator, okay? And honestly, the slides, uh, the numbers begin to look an awful lot better. Um, and this is how, um, the, and this is how our, our continuum in Georgia looks. We don't apply to any of these methodologies. We have 49% virally suppressed based on not uh, taking anybody out. So the question is, are we that much worse than New York? Well, in many ways, yes, we are. There's no doubt about it. But when it comes to this continuum, I think it's unclear how much worse we are because we're not using the same methodology at all. And this is the current New York City care continuum, which is really awesome, uh, showing 76% of people virally suppressed. I want to give a plug to longitudinal retention and viral suppression measures because, you know, these continua look at a cross-section in time, but our patients are longitudinal. And so uh, people at Grady in Atlanta, Jonathan Colasanti and his group, looked at people in their clinic uh, over time. And what you see here is that if you really string this out and look at viral suppression for 12 months, 24 months, 36 months, the numbers begin to look less and less good. But interestingly enough, what you also see if you look at demographics is that this measure can unmask disparities that were not necessarily so obvious. Uh, in this case, the difference between black and non-black uh, individuals. So let's talk about disparities a little bit. First of all, a big shout out to New York um, for leading the way to ending the epidemic. Um, you guys are awesome, and we've learned so much from you. Uh, these are your goals, so we're looking, uh, you are looking to have 50% of your Medicaid recipients uh, using PrEP annually, and to reduce your new HIV infections to 750, and to have 85% of those who are diagnosed virally suppressed. So here is what San Francisco's, oops, we're missing a slide there. Maybe not. Uh, here are the new diagnoses in San Francisco. If, if you um, look at their decade-long reduction in viral uh, in new diagnoses, what you see is remarkable change. If you look at Fulton County, what you see is almost nothing. So this is where I live. Our, our rates of new diagnoses have been flat. We're very, very excited about that little bitty downtick right there at the end. Um, we think we're making a little progress, but, uh, but this is the reality in the South, and we have breathtaking disparities. So 80% of our new HIV diagnoses, 87% of new AIDS diagnoses are in African-American individuals. 
And this is actually worse than our region as a whole. The South has the most um, in the proportion of African Americans uh, newly diagnosed, 54%. But if you look by region at this graph, you'll see that uh, there is quite a bit of variation by region according to the demographics that are most affected. So I want to go through a few slides from New York um, to show some of the disparities that are seen here. And thanks to uh, Dimitri Deskalakis and others for providing me some of these slides. Um, so you have your own geographic disparities, uh, Staten Island and Brooklyn, not as good as the rest of New York City in terms of timely initiation of care. I wanted to show this slide because another shout out to New York, you all actually collect data on transgender individuals, and a lot of places don't. And it's very important to collect these data so we can see whether there are disparities, and indeed there are. Viral suppression within six months of HIV is worse for youth. And I think we know that in most categories, the youth do worse, um, not a surprise. But here's something I think is interesting. We're uh, accustomed to seeing viral suppression being lower in injection drug users, but when you actually break that out, those who are gay and bisexual men and also injection drug users do worse than the category as a whole. So I think this begins to point, uh, point the way toward uh, groups that need uh, special attention. So how can we improve care continuum outcomes? So I am sorry to say that I believe the easy part has been done. Um, this is now a world where social determinants of health are really our biggest obstacles. Every single step on the care continuum is affected by stigma, discrimination, poverty. You can read the list, you know the list, your patients participate in these social determinants. But th these are really uh, some of our biggest obstacles now. So here's a map that looks familiar. Look at the clustering of red in the south, right? How many of you have seen this map before? Okay, so we have a group of endocrinologists here because this is a map of diabetes, all right? So it actually does overlap the map of HIV. The point is that HIV is not the only health disparity. And if you look at the map of poverty, it looks pretty much the same. And guess what looks almost the same? The map of Medicaid expansion. And so what we see is that socioeconomic disparities drive access to care, and access to care drives health disparities. And I found this map just yesterday, it's only been published for, for a few days, Kaiser Family Foundation published this map of ADAPs that carry medication-assisted treatment for opioid addiction. And once again, similar patterns. So since we're talking about uh, substance use, I want to thank Bob Remian for providing me with a few slides here. Um, you know, substance use, depression, uh, other co-occurring conditions, including childhood sexual abuse, really magnify HIV risk. The more conditions you have, the less likely you are to be able to stay HIV negative. And I wanted to show this depression treatment cascade because it's even more depressing than our own cascades. 
Um, and, and that's because only less than 50% of people with depression actually are recognized clinically. And less than 10% have adequate treatment. And shockingly, as many as two-thirds of youth have depression but are not diagnosed and therefore do not receive any kind of care. And so I think this is our job. I know that we are not all psychiatrists or psychologists, but the recommendation is that we should screen for depression in our populations, also substance use. It's not that hard, actually. There are many tools that are very quick, but we should be screening for, uh, for mental health issues not only when we're testing people, but also when they are in care, and not just once, but over and over, because things change over time. So, so don't forget to do this kind of screening. Uh, some of you may be reminded by a meaningful use indicator, which actually includes screening for depression. <clears throat> Something else that drives the ep epidemic is leadership. So I'm very happy to be here in a state that is committed to ending the epidemic. Where I come from, we had a state uh, legislative committee looking at health issues. And we presented the data about the care continuum. We talked about viral suppression, U equals U, and the inability to transmit the virus when it is suppressed. And here's what we got. A legislator asked, well, these people are carriers. You know, they used to all die, but now they're around spreading the virus. Um, so what can we legally do? And she used the word quarantine. And you may recognize that this is Representative Betty Price, the wife of uh, Tom Price, who was the HHS secretary. So that's where we come from. Who would want to get an HIV test in Georgia? Who would want to present to care? You know, these are, are real problems, the stigma and discrimination and criminalization. So, I believe that U equals U provides a partial antidote to this. And undetectable equals untransmittable is more than a statement about, uh, you know, transmission of the virus. It actually is a statement about self-efficacy, shame, guilt. And this slide also from Bob Rimian I like very much because it quotes a person with HIV who said, the night I learned about U equals U, I couldn't stop crying. It was like the burden that I didn't even realize I was carrying just fell away. So I, I encourage us to talk with our patients about this message, not just about the issue of transmission, but because it is self-empowering and it improves self-esteem. And I think we can't, uh, can't really underestimate that. We shouldn't underestimate it. Another thing that we need to pay attention to is criminalization. Criminalization by law is an extremely stigmatizing thing. And, you know, congratulations to California for making, taking steps to get rid of their criminalization laws. There are about 33 states that have them. New York doesn't have a criminalization law, but still in New York, people get higher penalties because they are HIV positive. So this is something we all need to be working on. We'll say a few words about interventions to improve linkage and viral suppression, really focusing on, uh, on some of the things we've talked about. Um, we have a task force in Fulton County where we, that put together a strategy to end AIDS in our county. 
And the bold step that we took was to say that all newly diagnosed people and people re-entering care should be linked to care within 72 hours. And, and so this really was a revelation in our community. And by the way, I want to give a tip of the hat again to New York because our friends in New York actually helped us organize our task force. Um, and, and we copied a lot of things from you. So here is another little question for you. You can go ahead and start voting. Um, what have rapid antiretroviral therapy start studies not shown? An increased rate of iris, improved retention in care at 12 months, decrease in time from diagnosis to viral suppression by half, and improved survival. So what do you think? Okay. I don't get any music. Guess they ran out. Jukebox. Ah, thank you, Scott. Sweet. Okay. So you're right. Um, really, no study has shown an increased rate of iris. Uh, for people who are started on antiretroviral therapy same day or immediately. Um, and there has been uh, demonstrated improvement in retention and care at 12 months and improved survival um, in Haiti, actually. And then we'll show you some data about decrease in time from diagnosis to viral suppression. So um, I mentioned that we made this commitment in Fulton County, and so our friends at the Grady Infectious Disease Center, which I mentioned um, earlier, where they have a huge number of patients, 6,500, decided to do um, same-day antiretroviral therapy. And they were able to decrease their days to the first scheduled provider visit and to the attended provider visit um, significantly. And as you already heard, uh, days to the start of antiretroviral therapy was significantly improved. And uh, this is the slide that Mike stole from me. Um, so that just means I don't have to go over too much again. But they improved their time to viral suppression. And maybe in the Q&A, we can talk a little bit about something I mentioned before. This was too successful for them. Uh, and so they did have to stop the program. This is a diagram of the San Francisco RAPID study, and I want to point out the part in the middle, the navigators, because they are the linchpin between the HIV testing sites and the rapid antiretroviral therapy hubs. So the navigators really pulled these two components together. And you already saw this slide earlier as well, and I'll point out that they halved their time from diagnosis to viral suppression by using this uh, same-day start methodology. And let's give uh, credit to New York City, where the Jump Start program is actually also doing this. You all have eight sexual health clinics around the city, and they have navigators, and they have uh, linkage to long-term care. And these are preliminary data presented at CROI on about 149 people 
who uh, presented to the Jumpstart program, and 83% had linkage to care within 30 days if they were newly diagnosed, 63% if they were previously diagnosed. And, and a good number are showing excellent viral suppression. So what about retention in care? This is a real problem. It's a huge problem for us, and our task force decided as a methodology for everything we, we did to go all over our county and just talk to people. So we had listening sessions all over the county, and we asked only very simple questions, and then we actually listened. Um, we said, um, what could we do to help people with HIV stay in care? And you know what they told us? They told us they hated our clinics. They told us that we had a negative clinic culture, that your clinics make me feel uncomfortable. The person at the desk looks at me funny when I walk in. They think I'm dumb because my English is not so good. And my time is not valued. I have to take a day off work to go to the doctor, and then I just sit there all day. So, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about what we can do, get, how we can get our patients to do better, but we decided maybe we need to get our clinics to do better. And so we are working on this project, um, and, and one of the key things was to try to create client-centered clinic cultures, and we created a task force for intercultural awareness, and they are actually doing surveys because we never asked the patients in the clinics what their experience was. We also want to reduce wait times um, to try to utilize non-traditional hours, including weekends, provide transportation uh, with Uber and Lyft. I mentioned before we have terrible transportation in Atlanta. Uh, expand clinic access, use reminder phone calls, and so on. So these things are in progress. I want to mention to you a, a stunning study that's a little bit older. Michael Mugavero looked at something that was really an extremely powerful indicator uh, of risk, and that is someone who has a no-show visit in the clinic within the first year. And a no-show visit is a very strong predictor of mortality as well as hospitalization, as well as all the bad outcomes. So I would suggest that missed visits really need to be followed up on, not just to hound the person to come in, but to find out why they missed a visit, and then to help deploy some resources to help them. Viral suppression, of course, is another issue. South Africa has really beaten us on this one. They are rolling out an ATM machine to help people access their medications. Um, and, and I think the point here is to remove barriers, to try to make it easy for people. So there are some interventions to improve viral suppression. I think one of the most important ones is just to say we should assess adherence before the viral load goes up. When the viral load goes up, the game is already, you know, far down the road. So assessing adherence is a really important thing at every visit. Also, we have to remove the institutional barriers that keep people from getting continuous medication access. And so the rapid entry, rapid art programs are trying to do this, um, revamping ADAP and their requalification procedures so that people don't have the risk of lapses in their medicines. And here I would also suggest that we, also, we all need to be advocates. Insurance actually can be a barrier to care because our insurance companies now have loaded up on prior authorizations, step therapy, 30-day quantity limits, and high tiering of antiretrovirals. So they, in some cases, they are all on the highest tier. 
meaning that they actually can be very expensive. We dodged some bullets in 2018. The uh, president's budget would have decimated our programs at CDC, at HRSA, at the NIH, uh, and as well as global HIV. Um, but we have ongoing threats. So if you're not following all this politics, and I understand wanting to look away from it because, oh my God, um, but, but we have to look at this stuff because it's really impacting our patients in a big way. So did you know that now they are trying to make it easier through HHS to have waivers that will allow people to charge, insurance companies to charge more for people who have pre-existing conditions, uh, to eliminate essential health benefits, which include prescription drug coverage, and to restore lifetime caps. So these things are happening. Um, we are already seeing work requirements layered onto Medicaid. These are things that are going to hurt our patients. And federal support for housing is always on the chopping block, although apparently $31,000 tables are not. So I... I <laughs> So this last point to me is quite disturbing. Um, we are now seeing that some major insurers are not allowing copay cards to be used toward patient deductibles. And honestly, the copay card thing is a scam. It's a house of cards. The pharmacy benefit manager, the whole system we have really doesn't work very well. But when you take away one piece, then everything falls apart. And so now we are seeing that insurers are cutting back on these drug coupons or copay cards um, because they're concerned about consumer costs. The irony is this is the only way many of our patients who are insured can actually even get their drugs. And so I think this is something to keep our eyes on. I, um, we can talk a little bit later, if you want to ask questions, about generic drugs. Because guess what? Generic drugs, not necessarily cheaper and may indeed be unaffordable. So if you identify problems with an insurance company, okay, I want you to do this. Go to www.speakup.hiv and tell them about it. You don't have to betray patient confidentiality, but this is a national uh, group that is actually collecting information about these, uh, these uh, things that are happening to our patients. So you can report these issues, and it's important that we do that kind of thing. So I want to end with a call for you to activate your inner activist. Um, this is a time when we need to mobilize, we need to organize, uh, we need to resist these things that are happening that really have dramatic impact on our patients and their ability to, to stay in care and achieve good outcomes. And if you are not a member of the HIV Medicine Association, I want to invite you to join that group because we do a lot of this advocacy. And if you've never been an advocate or an activist, we can teach you how to do that. Um, it's really important at the local level, the state level, at the national level. So please um, join HIVMA. It's actually free if you're an IDSA member. So I end by saying that this really is our goal, um, or, or is it? Is undetectable viral load really our goal? Honestly, I think it's more than that. 
I think we're really looking for happy, healthy, long lifespans for our patients and no new HIV infections. So I, I hope that we will all join together uh, to be activists, to be scientists, to be clinicians, um, and to join hand in hand with our patients to make this happen. Thank you very much. Well, that was fabulous. So um, I'm waiting for some questions, but um, I'm going to ask you one. So um, would you consider, after you finished in Georgia, coming and living in New York? <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, for, for about five years, I've gone around to all the, all the good places asking them to adopt Georgia. Um, and, and actually some friends in New York kind of did that. They really kind of have held our hands and helped us. Um, but, uh, but I think no matter where we are, we all have challenges with our patients. You know, you guys are astounding. You have so many resources here you, you really don't even know uh, unless you come to a place where we don't have these kind of resources. But even with what you have, um, you know, things can get better and need to get better. And, and we're, I think we're all at the same point in this epidemic that we're beginning to fight the things that are really, really hard. But thank you for the invitation. I, I would love to move to New York. So um, <clears throat> I work in a resource-limited setting uh, in rural KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa and have. And many of us, I think, doing HIV work have, because the full force of the epidemic has moved, even though we have so much work to do still here, have done that. And one of the things that people talk a lot about is task shifting. Yeah. And that um, one of the ways of improving care including some of the special things you talked about um, in clinics, um, would be helped by actually changing some of the relationship that healthcare workers and patients have, and even interspersing between professional healthcare workers and patients and a whole array of different types of community healthcare workers. Um, from the communities of the patients, understanding the problems, um, trained with special kill skills, screening for disease, medication, whatever. So I'm wondering if that's been incorporated into the work that you're doing and whether that's another area that could be strengthened to improve your final goal for our patients. Yeah, you know, I think that's really an important point, Jerry, because, um, you know, as a doctor, I can say we're not all that, um, really. Uh, there are a lot of people who are more important in the teams than doctors um, in many ways. You know, we have a very important role to play, but for our patients who are complicated and need help accessing services, you know, even spending the time to, to engage with them, ask about their lives, try to figure out what they need, takes an awful lot of time. Um, and it may be that other people are better th at, at that than doctors. Also, I think it's important to identify people who can do um, visits that are not you know, sort of well baby visits, people who are doing well. You know, they don't have to see a physician every time. Certainly mid-level practitioners, which is they are now called uh, advanced practice um, providers mid, uh, who are um, PAs, nurse practitioners, really 
it has been shown are as good as physicians in delivering care and we should be using them more and more. Uh, but the, also there are people who are less trained who can take over parts of these complicated right. interactions. And I think we can learn a lot from the so-called low resource settings because um, you know we have low resources in a lot of ways here in the United States. Wow. Um, so I, I, we're especially looking at peers Mm -hmm. um, and the idea of community health workers is a great idea to have people who are trying to go out into the communities. I, I'm a believer that we need to begin to take services to people where they are instead of always trying to get them to come to where we are. Um, turns out that's kind of hard. But, you know, I think we also get to the point of um, financial limits and workforce limits. You know, our, we're having trouble finding people to hire uh, to take care of all these patients, people who are qualified, uh, particularly clinicians, uh, but also having the funding to pay for those other people. Um, and I think we have to begin to convince funders that they are as important as the primary clinicians in many ways. So is this something for the HIVMA to take up as a... No, probably has. Yeah, or, uh, yeah I, th I think actually there are parts of this that are in our policy agenda. Um, we certainly are focusing on workforce. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that we're working on, we are trying to get uh, some traction with the idea of um, loan forgiveness for providers who work in Ryan White clinics uh, because, you know, there is a, a loan forgiveness program. Uh, that generally means you work in a low-resourced setting, but some of our low-resourced settings are big clinics in the middle of urban areas uh, where we need more clinicians. So we're trying to do some of those kind of things. Um. Thank you. Um, here's a more specific question. Um, your comment about U13 to 19, viral suppression rates being understandably worse, need some qualifying. Mm. Perinatal infected youth drive, drive this rate down, whereas behaviorally infected youth have much higher suppression rates. Are you familiar with that? I, I think that's an interesting point. Yeah. And I think the other thing that happens is that um, when we see a transition from pediatric or adolescent care into adult care, we often see a big drop off that those who are trained to work in pediatrics and the young adolescents do a really good job at working with their patients. And sometimes there's parental help uh, to keep, uh, keep the adherence up. And then it, it begins to drop off over time. So I think a couple of things are happening here. And I, I do think that um, there are some data to show that there are differences between those groups. I didn't have time to go into that. But you know, when you look at the care continua, you really do generally see that for retention, for viral suppression, and so on, the younger groups, sometimes even up to age 30, um, tend to do worse. Um, we actually, I'm sure many uh, of the audience have a population of people who were congenitally infected mm -hmm. and who have lived with HIV all of their lives with uh, often tremendous, not entirely, but often uh, tremendous uh, challenges in terms of multiple antiretroviral resistance, but also um, social, psychological, environmental challenges. So that is a particularly challenging population that we haven't really talked about specifically, but who would have even thought that that 
might be a possibility at the beginning of the early days of the HIV epidemic, but they need very special services, and many of them, of course, have become parents themselves. That's right. And uh, it gets very complicated, but a very important targeted population. So one in the audience, if I get this right, has asked, um, discuss the tension between not providing barriers to patients getting medication by refilling prescriptions, even if patients don't come in for visits, to cutting off refills after because of worry of resistance and toxicity. I'm not sure I understand that. If there's someone in the audience who wrote that who wants to come forward and ask that question, okay, so we can answer it. Yes, thank you. Yeah, I think that is the tension, and you know, I, um, I, it really is an individualized issue. I think it also depends on who that patient is, how well you know them, what their history is in your clinic, and so on. Um, but you know, I, I think we don't want to cut people off from their medicines prematurely, uh, which is one of the worst things that you can do in HIV. At the same point, at the same time, there is a point where I think you have to say, I can't continue to just refill and refill and refill this prescription without seeing the patient. And, and that's where I think um, really having some resources to help with outreach makes a huge difference. So, um, you know, it's, if somebody misses a visit, then, you know, what can we find out about why that person missed a visit? If, if somebody's not coming in when they're supposed to, what's going on with them? So I know we all try to call our patients, and, you know, sometimes patients, uh, they don't have any more minutes left on their phones. Uh, or, you know, they don't have, um, they have to pay for every text they send, so they don't answer texts. So I think community health workers, for example, would be, an, this would be an ideal way to deploy a community health worker system so that people can actually go find the patients as best you can and, and continue to reach out to them. You know, we have busy, busy clinics and you make a call or two, but people are not really equipped to continue to call and call and try to find the patients. And I think that's one of the places where our systems fall apart, really. Um, and, and we know, just like this um, magic happens here box, uh, where we know that people move. Um, you know, people just leave. They don't tell us why they're leaving. Um, and, you know, there are challenges with that, too. So I, I think um, we always try to get a couple of contacts for patients. We ask them every time they come in uh, if we have their correct information. Um, you know, we try to be sure we have some ability to get in contact with them. I, I don't think there is a hard and fast rule as to how many refills you give somebody um, or when you stop looking for them. You know, the reality is at some point you probably have to stop and hope that they are in care somewhere else. Good. One uh, final question and perhaps some of the other remaining faculty would chime in. There's a question about um, it sounds like trusting generic 
drugs if a managed care organization actually makes that the available source of drug? That is, how do you know the generic drugs are as good as the pharmaceutical um, um, labeled drugs? Right. So, you know, I think um, if, if generic drugs are approved by the FDA, then they are rigorously looked at. Um, and, you know, to me, I, I'm not worried about that. I'm, I'm worried about some drugs that people, I, I get patients who go all over the world and bring home their antiretrovirals. I worry some about those, depending on where they get them. But I'm not worried about the quality of the generic drugs um, that we have here in the U.S. I, I do think there are some other issues with generic drugs, and we're now going to have enough generic drugs to really begin to see these issues play out. For example, TDF3TC is now available in a fixed-dose combination. And I had the first patient um, call to say that he had gone to the pharmacy, and he was told that they would not, ex the insurance wouldn't accept his copay card for Truvada anymore um, because there was now a generic. And they told him he had to get the generic. And then he was told that the generic would cost $300 and there was no copay card. And so he was panicked. And I think these are the issues, these are some of the generic issues. It's not to me so much the quality, um, it's, it's affordability. And then it's also, are we going to decompose some of these fixed-dose regimens and begin to give them as separate pills? You know, for some people that may work fine. For other people it may pose a real adherence disadvantage. So I, I don't think we really know what to do with generics, but the assumption that generics are going to be always cheaper is simply not true. Um, right. But uh, so I think there are a number of issues. I once was at a meeting, as it turned out, in China, and um, there were some pharma pharmacists, pharmacologists, who were sitting around the table, um, young guys, and they had a huge uh, factory, and I asked them what they made, and it turned out that they were making antiretrovirals. They were making them for the big pharma, right, uh, and also for the generic uh, distributor. Mm -hmm. So the same powder was actually going to different places, mm -hmm. but it was repackaged. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if that happens all the time, but it was really a revelation in terms of what we really don't know and understand about what goes on in pharmaceutical industry at that level. But um, so anyway, just an anecdote. Um, so thank you very much. That was wonderful. Thank you. Okay.